of hope, and uh, man, that is just the, the reason that, that we gather here, to celebrate the great hope that we have in Christ Jesus. Today, uh, as Lane has already mentioned, we begin a, a new series thinking about some, some key words that we're going to be hearing a lot of anyway. Uh, this is the, the time of year when the world is thinking about Jesus, perhaps more so than, than any other time. I've heard Gary say that many times over the years. It's just, it's just true, and, and I don't know how you feel about that. For me, it's a great thing. <laughs> it's, it's always a good time to think about Jesus and to talk about Jesus. Uh, this is the time of year when uh, department stores and radio stations are playing songs that that talk about the birth of Jesus, that talk about his lordship. Uh, so you, you hear songs like, you know, Away in a Manger and, and Silent Night being played right alongside songs like Rudolph and Frosty. And, and so again, I, I feel like that's a really, really good thing. And so if the world is going to spend some time thinking about Jesus, then I, I think it's important for us to really think about Jesus. And in particular, at this time of year, we think a lot about gift giving. Maybe you've already started that process of, you know, shopping for the people on your list. And, and, and that's kind of fun to give gifts. But, but really, at the heart of what I hope we can think about, and Lane and I will be speaking about this over the next several weeks, I hope we can be thinking about not the gifts that, that we give, but, but rather the gifts that we receive in Christ Jesus. And that's really where we want to spend our, our, our time over the, next, over the next few Sundays, Lord willing. Thinking about the peace that comes through Jesus. As Tom just led us in our time around the table, we're thinking about the peace that he has brokered on our behalf. Every Sunday morning when we gather around that table. And as we reflect on that, there's this spirit of great joy that moves among God's people. When we begin to reflect on what he's done, man, that spirit of joy just wells up. So we begin to praise God with these, these songs of joy and thanksgiving. And at the heart of all that is this story of love. That God loved you and he loved me before we were even formed. And because of that, he acted in Jesus to decisively demonstrate that love to the world. With arms wide open, Jesus hangs on that cross as an act of love. But we begin this morning, and we've been singing these songs and reflecting in prayer. Now, as we look at God's word, we think about the great hope, the eternal hope that is ours in Christ Jesus. Uh, in his letter to the Romans, Paul is working to unite a church that is divided by racial tension. If you want to turn there in your Bibles to Romans, we'll read from Romans chapter 15 in just a minute. Let me give you a little bit of background as, as you do. So in the late 40s, um, about a decade and a half or so after the death of Jesus, the Jewish Christians are expelled from Rome by an emperor named Claudius. And four or five years later, after Claudius passes away, the Jewish Christians return, but they return and they find a church where the, the Gentile Christians have done more than just hold the fort down. They've gotten along just fine without their brothers and sisters who've moved on. 
And so this church is in the middle of a, a little bit of conflict as Paul writes to them. And as you read through the New Testament, you see this all the time. The, the Jewish Christians really struggle with knowing how to relate to their Gentile brothers and sisters. They considered them for a long time to be second-class citizens because they hadn't received the covenant promises and they hadn't received the Torah. We'll talk about that more here in just a minute. So when these Jewish Christians are expelled from Rome, the Gentile Christians operate just fine. And then the Jewish Christians come back and try to integrate the Gentile Christians, probably feel like it's time for a little bit of payback, you know? We're fine without you. We don't need you. And so what Paul does is he writes this letter in part to let them know he's coming for a visit. And he wants them to contribute to the ongoing work uh, helping the saints, the poor, uh, in Jerusalem and, and elsewhere too. But also this, he, he's writing to remind these believers that they are one. They are united in the work of the Messiah. And one of the hallmarks of that unity is this hope. We're going to stay in Romans. I just want to remind you of what Paul has said to, uh, to, the, uh, to the Ephesians here. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4, he says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. Okay? Here, he's talked about the, the unifying work of hope. That hope is, is sort of like this connective tissue, connecting body and spirit. So for Paul, here's kind of how he sees it. For anyone who, who comes to Christ, they participate in the covenant promises of God. Now for Jewish Christians, that means recognizing Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah, the one who was predicted and, and anticipated in all those Old Testament prophecies. For Gentile Christians, it means being grafted into the body of Christ. It means being adopted into the family of God. But both of these groups, Paul, uh, that Tom kind of referred to a moment ago as we gathered around the table, these Gentile Christians and these Jewish Christians, they are equal partakers of God's covenant faithfulness. And that undergirds everything that Paul says. Because God is faithful, we can have hope. So, so Paul can say this with confidence about the scriptures, okay? That whatever was written in former days was written... For our instruction, he says in Romans chapter 15, verse 4, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So when Paul talks about the scriptures here, let's think about this for a second. He's talking about what we refer to as the Old Testament, okay? And he's saying that those scriptures were written for our benefit, for our instruction, but not only our instruction. They were written so that we might have hope. That's exactly what he says here uh, in this text. He says that these scriptures fund our hope. That they're really the grounds for our hope. Because not only do those scriptures speak to this, this vision of, of Jewish Christian and Gentile Christian, Jew and Gentile being united under the banner and the work of the Messiah, but they also an anticipate this moment of reconciliation in the future when all humanity is reconciled back to God in these new heavens and the new earth. All that is promised in these scriptures. And so to believe them is to take part in hope, Paul says. God gives us these scriptures so that we might have hope. So for Paul, uh, the hope of eternity comes shining through in the way these believers treat one another. Look at the next few verses, just there in your Bibles, okay? In the next few verses, Paul says this. Uh, he urges the believers to live in such harmony with one another 
He says that in verse 5. That together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says that in verse 6. And he concludes with this practical uh, application in verse 7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Follow his thought here, okay? Being united in the scriptures unites us in a common hope. Paul says, for the scriptures are written so that we would have hope. Not that we would be without hope, but that we would know hope, okay? And then that, in turn, that, that common hope that we have, that in turn unites us, Paul says, in the way that we treat one another. Undergirding this teaching of Paul's is this matrix of, of faith, hope, and love, this uh, these virtues that Paul is always going to keep coming back to over and over in his teaching, okay? So as you, as you look at this, uh, we have faith in the scriptures. We put our trust in the scriptures. We believe in those scriptures, okay? And Paul says that when we do that, the, the payout of that is hope. When we trust, when we have faith, the payout is hope. And then in turn, he says, whenever we hope, when we are united in a common hope, when we know that we're sharing eternity together, that impacts the way that we treat one another. We begin to love each other well because we have a common hope. I mean, we're all going to spend eternity together anyway, right? So we might as well start liking each other. You know, we might as well start loving each other. Might as well get comfortable with one another is kind of the idea Paul says. So it impacts the way we love one another in the present. And then in turn, that love, when we love each other well, the scriptures say, that is the greatest demonstration of what faith in Jesus Christ looks like. Loving each other, loving God, that's an expression of our faith. And so faith, hope, and love are just deeply interwoven into this text, and they're bound up in kind of this, this matrix of meaning for Paul, and it's sort of undergirding this teaching here in this passage. And then he goes through and he, he reminds us of some of these scriptures. He quotes some of these scriptures in Romans 15 that fund our hope. And the one we really want to focus on is in verse 12, where he quotes from Isaiah. Here it is. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles to the Hebrew way of thinking, uh, the Gentiles were without hope. To the Hebrew way of thinking, the Gentiles were the most hopeless of all people because they had not received the covenant promise of God and because they had not received the Torah, they have not received the word of God. But Paul writes here to remind these believers that it was always God's intent. It was always God's intent to bring Jew and Gentile together in the work of the Messiah. And in fact, he says, the scriptures themselves bear witness to this. So all that is really important background, all that is really important teaching. As we're walking through kind of Paul's argument there in Romans chapter 15. But this is where it gets really, really practical for us. Okay, all that teaching is good, but here, here's kind of where we pivot. And, and this, this becomes really practical for our understanding all of what Paul says here makes the gospel of Jesus Christ a word of hope for the hopeless. 
Everything that Paul is, is, is writing about here and all that was going on in that particular church and all of the, the tension and everything, we get to this point where we can look at all of that and we can understand all of that, but here's, here's kind of the practical, uh, you know, where, where, where it really touches down in our lives point for us is this, that, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is a word of hope for those even in the most hopeless of circumstances. In Jesus, the scriptures say, a light has dawned. Isaiah is going to say that a people who are walking in darkness have now seen a great light because of the work of Jesus Christ. He says those who were without hope have now become the most hopeful people of all because now they're not bumbling around in the dark anymore. No, they have seen the light of the world come to set us free from the powers and all their temptations and our struggle with sin. That need not have the last word anymore because this light, he says, has dawned. So thanks be to the Messiah, Paul says. And he closes out with this, this flourish in verse 13. It's kind of this, this word of blessing and this word of, of prayer and this word of praise. May the God of hope, he says, fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of his Holy Spirit... You may abound in hope. And that's Paul's prayer. For those who, who read this letter originally, and I would say anyone who comes along and reads it in the centuries since, what Paul wants, what he deeply desires, is that we would abound in hope. And he locates the source of that hope. The source of that hope is God. So the question becomes, are you abounding in hope? Maybe your translation uses the word overflow. It's the same idea. Are you overflowing with hope today? That's what God's word is pointing us to. You know, hope is one of the most powerful forces in our world. It really is. It, it can sustain us through times of, of great tragedy and sorrow and, and pain. Hope has the power to propel us forward when we're not sure we can take another step the the one who has hope she can bear almost anything with hope i like the way uh, the biblical scholar michael gorman says it he says that hope is the future tense of faith I really like that Hope is the belief that our present circumstances won't last forever. And, and the biblical hope is that God has so much more in store for his people. So when we talk about hope, we're talking about intentionally orienting ourselves upward, heavenward. It's hanging on to this belief that no matter the circumstances that I'm experiencing today in the present, okay, that the story of God ends in glory for the people of God. That's biblical hope. And it's important that we, we not confuse hope with another term that's used a lot in our culture today, and that's optimism. 
It may sound as if what we're talking about here is, is, you know, biblical optimism, Christian optimism. But those two things, even though they're used interchangeably, they're not the same thing. In fact, there's a, there's a huge difference between optimism and the hope that the scriptures call us to. Optimism focuses on the power of positive thinking. It focuses in on, on, on this, this belief that, um, that the future will hold good and positive experiences for us. And it won't have those, those bad and negative experiences that we all want to avoid. That's, that's optimism at its heart. Philosophically, optimism is the doctrine that the world we inhabit is the best of all possible worlds. But hope is something altogether different. Biblical hope is the belief that we do not live in the best of all possible worlds. But that world is coming in Jesus. Biblical hope is the understanding that we cannot avoid those negative, painful experiences. Try as we might. There's nothing we can do to avoid the pain and the sorrow and the tragedy that is a part of our world. But even if those things happen, or maybe a better way to say it is even when those things happen, biblical hope is this dogged belief that it's still going to be okay in the end because the story of God ends in glory for the people of God. You see the difference between those two? Between optimism and hope? If you ask me, optimism is really, really naive. It is. Because this world is cruel and it will steal your lunch money. (laughs) And there's nothing you can do to avoid the pain of our world. But hope. Hope is something we can really cling to. Because even if or even when those things happen, there's a promise of more in store for for the people of God. If we use those strict definitions, you can say that the story of Jesus is a hopeful story, but you can't call it an optimistic story. Because, again, the story of Jesus is filled with some of these really painful really hurtful experiences, these negative experiences. You read the Gospels, his story is filled with rejection. It's filled with heartbreak. His opponents question the legitimacy of his birth. Has that ever happened to you? They said that he did the work of Satan, not the work of God. Has that ever happened to you? Uh, His own family members, you know what they thought? They thought he was mentally unstable. His story is filled with so much pain that Isaiah, our prophet for today, he calls him a man of sorrows, says he's well acquainted with grief, that there's nothing in his appearance that would attract people to him. He was just almost grotesque in their eyes. He was so well acquainted with tragedy and sorrow. Luke says that night in Gethsemane, when he's praying and he's praying and he's pouring it out, These sweat drops like blood form on his brow, which is just a 
a preview of the agony he was about to experience in crucifixion. And Jesus makes this promise. He plays with his cards face up. He says, look, here's the deal. If you're going to follow me, the world's going to treat you the same way it treated me. If the world hates me, guess what? It's going to happen to you too. And that's echoed throughout the pages of the scriptures. Paul says this to his young protege. Sage advice from somebody who's been there. Anybody who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, this is what you're signing up for. Persecution. Any takers? I can't find anything in the Bible that affirms a, a view of optimism. That, 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 that affirms the power of just positive thinking. Or some Pollyanna idea that we live in the best of all possible worlds. I, I hate to burst your bubble. I don't find anything in the Bible that tells you you ought to be optimistic in those terms. Here's the good news. In Christ Jesus, we have a lot of reasons for hope. And in the scriptures, we find so much in there about real biblical hope that delivers so much more than blind optimism. Because real biblical hope is this, this even-if faith. To abound in hope in the way that Paul describes is to have this even-if faith where we say, okay, even if the worst thing happens, even when, if you're a pessimist, even when the worst thing happens, I'm going to continue to steadfastly, to doggedly hang on to this story about Jesus. Because what he went through didn't end in a tomb. It ended in a tomb that was empty. And with him riding a cloud to sit at the right hand of the Father. And the promise that he is, in fact, the resurrection and the life. And anyone who claims victory through his death and resurrection will experience the same thing. It's that even if faith. You read about it in the Old Testament. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Other people call them Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I'm calling them by the names their moms gave them. Okay? But when they're threatened with fire, they say basically... We believe our God is powerful enough to deliver us from that fire. But here's the kicker, right? But even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow down to you. Even if faith. It's an expression of hope, right? Uh, Peter and John in the book of Acts. And the ruling council commanded them not to preach anymore in the name of Jesus. You remember what they said? They refused. They said, we can't stop speaking about Jesus. We can't help but talk about the one that we've pledged our lives to. So do to us whatever it is you've got to do. Beat us, throw us in jail, kill us. You do the same thing to us that you did to Jesus, guess what? He's going to do the same thing to us. That happened to him. It's that even if... Hope is believing that God is going to keep his promises. That even if the worst things happen, we can still have hope because we have Jesus. And I don't mean to make hope sound easy. Maintaining hope can be really, really difficult at times. 
Hope can easily erode when we look around at the world that we live in. It's full of violence and it's full of greed. It's a world where, where evil just runs rampant, where people are bought and sold and used left and right. But these words from the scriptures that we're looking at here today, they remind us again that Jesus offers hope to the hopeless. God is the author of hope. He's the source of hope. And through Jesus, the very hope of God overflows in us. So if we find ourselves lacking in hope, Paul's advice for us in Romans 15 is to, to turn to the scriptures. God's word tells the story of the forgiveness that we receive through Jesus. But there's another team on the other sideline and they're calling plays and they're trying to do anything that they possibly can to keep us from placing our hope in Christ. Place your hope in anything else is what the, the other sideline is whispering to us. Anything, just, just don't place your hope in that Jesus story, but anything and everything else. That's where you need to place your hope. But I'm reminded that hope is this, this key component of remembering that only God can offer eternal. I was talking to a friend of mine recently. He really struggles with alcoholism, and we were just having one of those honest talks, and he was telling me uh, he's really struggling with staying sober, is really struggling with making the right kinds of decisions. Uh, he's like, I, I, I can't drive around in, in, in the town I live in because um, I know all the places that I used to stop. And, and every time I'm driving around, it's like I kind of have to fight the steering wheel from turning into this place or that place because I know every, everywhere where I can get, you know, something to drink. And uh, he's like, I, I, f I feel terrible. I know I'm going to feel like garbage when I get to the bottom of that bottle. I know it. Like, cognitively, I know it, and yet I can't stop. I can't. And we talked about that. We talked about some of the consequences that he's still facing because of the last drinking binge he went on. So we tried to look at it from a different angle and from, from the perspective of eternity. And what we realized is that, one, Satan's really great at marketing. Uh, he's really great at, at, at taking something that he knows we want and dressing it up making it look so ultimate, making it look so great, and, and he puts it in, in front of us, and, and, and when he does, we lose all perspective of, of eternity. You know, God says that in, in Ecclesiastes, he's put eternity in the hearts of, of men. But when, when we're in the throes of temptation, it's like we can't even see that past that. All we can see is that one thing. And if we just have that, man, it'll last, it'll be so good, and we don't ever think about, you know, well, what's on the back side of that, and the guilt and the shame, and, you know, all this sort of stuff. But we realized in that conversation, only God has the power to offer eternal. He's the only one that, that can offer that because he is eternal. And the gift of eternal hope, the gift of eternal life, that can only come from God. And the powers are great at, at tempting us to think that that is ultimate. And boy, wouldn't it be great, but it never lasts. Whatever the temptation is for you, you know, you give into it, that little bit of gossip or that little bit of lust or that little bit of anger. Like, I don't know what it is, but you give into it. And maybe it does feel good in a moment. Sin feels good or else people wouldn't do it. But on the backside of that, because he said eternity in your hearts, you realize how fleeting that is, how nothing that is, how plastic that stuff is. And you're left, you're left empty. Only God can offer eternal, he said. And so, from that point of view, maintaining hope in the eternal promises of God is really an act of spiritual warfare. It's a way of fending off 
the powers and all their temptations and the, way, the things that they throw at us. And realize, okay, even if I don't get what I want right now, in the here and now, I have a promise through King Jesus of life eternal because he has vanquished every foe. He can deliver me from this fire, but even if he doesn't deliver me from this fire, he's going to deliver me from the ultimate fire. And I put my hope and my trust in him and him alone. That's future tense faith. My friend showed me this the other day. I think it really gets at the heart of the hope we're talking about. It says, the, the devil knows your name, but he calls you by your sin. And that really rings true for some of us. The devil knows your name, but he calls you by your sin. But here's the flip side of that. God knows your sin. But he's the one calling you by your name. Bidding you to come home. Bidding you to receive the gift that he truly offers in Christ Jesus. When Satan calls us by our sin, he's basically wishing death upon us. Because the wages of sin is death. But praise be to God. The free gift that he offers is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because we don't just receive hope in Jesus. Paul says this to young Timothy. Christ Jesus is our hope. We have hope because he's given himself to us. We have hope because of what he has done for us. And all of our hopes in this season, they culminate on this little baby who will grow into a man, who will take on all of our foes, who will take on all of our sin, who will rise victorious and offer the same eternal life to us. With Jesus, there's always hope. With Jesus, there is hope even in the most hopeless of circumstances. So today, may it be said that our God is able to deliver us from whatever, whatever presently threatens us. He can deliver us from any fire. I believe the scriptures affirm that. They bear witness to that. But this is true hope. Even if he doesn't. Even if he does not deliver us from what presently threatens us. The story of God still ends in glory for the people of God. And this is the gift we receive in Christ Jesus gift of eternal hope. Are you abounding in that hope today? If not, do you want to be? If so, receive that free gift. Right now in this moment, confess the lordship of Jesus before men and he promises to confess your name before the Father. Walk with him into those waters of baptism and let God's spirit create something new forgiving you of all your past sins, all your present struggles, all your future sins, wiped away a clean slate. The empowerment of God to help you live a transformed and redeemed life. The Spirit of God hovers over those waters, offering hope. If you're not abounding in hope, maybe you had it at one point in time, but that hope has grown faint. I pray that you would turn to Christ Jesus again, who offers hope for the hopeless. And if you are subject in any way to his call, I hope that you will respond to the one who is our hope.
Because this word is given in the name of Jesus Christ, the sovereign Lord, who makes all things new. He who has ears, let him hear. Let's stand together and let's sing.